This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. This is message number 31 in our series entitled Magnify Jesus. Uh, and we're just going through the book of Philippians, verse by verse. By way of review, the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul from prison. Uh, the church at Philippi was a church that he had started from scratch on his second missionary journey. And uh, he had a great relationship with them. Uh, he had been about 10 years removed from being their pastor. Uh, he finds himself in prison and he writes a letter back to them, just encouraging them to keep up the good work. And so uh, the, uh, the theme that we've been going through is kind of going to be the same a little bit today. We took a look at two weeks ago uh, how unity in the church actually strengthens the church or makes us better. And that if anybody has a problem with anybody else, you need to get it sorted out and solved and, uh, so that we can all be on the same page together. Last week, we took a look at humility and how it's important for us to not just take care of ourselves, but take care of one another, uh, and that we should value other people uh, greater than we value ourselves, and make sure that everybody else is getting taken care of as well. We find ourselves today, uh, really, this passage here, these uh, next few verses, we're going to spend a few weeks here uh, just so that we can unpack all of this, and just so much good stuff here. Uh, We're going to to, to verse number five uh, through eight today, and we're going to start. Uh, so we're going to start on that. Put it that way. We won't get through all of it today, but uh, it'll be some good stuff. Entitled today's message: Service by Submission. And we'll uh, we'll start at verse number one just to give us a context of the passage. But we'll really focus on verses uh, five through eight uh, this morning. Philippians chapter two, verse number one: If there therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant." And it was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The uh, challenge that we have here in this passage is, again, you know, making sure that uh, we're all in agreement with one another on the same page doctrinally and missionally, and uh, there's no interpersonal drama in the church. Then we go on to, to say, hey, let's take care of each other, not think that we're better than anybody else, and make sure that we all uh, have a humble spirit, a humble attitude, and, and walking with Jesus the way that we should. And then we get down to verse number five, and this is really where uh, Paul tells us how we get it done. It's one thing to know what we're supposed to do. It's another thing to know how we're supposed to get it done. And how do we get it done? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus for us, when we started Who We Call a Baptist Church, the mission of Who We Call a Baptist Church is really simple. Uh, we didn't draft a mission statement whenever we started Who We Call it because the mission statement for the church was already given. Uh, four times in the Gospels and once in the book of Acts, Jesus gives what's called the Great Commission. Go, win, baptize, teach. That's the mission of the church. It's kind of non-negotiable for the church. And again, you probably hear that uh, every Sunday or at least every other Sunday here at Who We Call it because we've got to keep the mission ahead of us. Why do we do what we're supposed to do? It's so that people can know Jesus and can live for him. That's the bottom line. That's the mission of any new church that's doing things God's way. Simple as that. 
But what we try to articulate with our core values as a church is how do we accomplish that? How do we go win, baptize, and teach as the church? What are the things that have to be critically involved for us to be able to fulfill the mission. We call that our core values. Uh, If you came in through the front door uh, today, you saw our core values on the front door. Love, pray, give, serve, invest. And so that's kind of is for us kind of making sure that we're keeping on track and keeping on target and that we're guided the right direction. Everything is done through a love for God and a love for other people. Everything is done through much prayer and fasting and seeking God's face in all things. We serve one another because Jesus lived a life of service. Uh, We because Jesus gave everything that he had and then we invest our lives in the cause of Christ and in the kingdom because that's what we as Christians have been called to do. That's what we call our core values. The core values really isn't like some cute little saying that we came up with or some cute little uh, thing that, that we got a little round table together and put things up on a board to see what fit. We didn't make a word cloud to figure out like uh, how this all works. You know what we did? We just looked at the life of Jesus. And we said, what are the things that were critical to the life of Jesus that we ourselves can now live out as well? And that's really where we, where we wound up. And so again, when we look at this, when we, we look at really just being a good Christian is really just living like Jesus did. And so as we uh, get to this passage here, we take a look at how our love for God really flows into a life of service. And Jesus, because of his love for the Father and his love for you and I, was willing to, the Bible says, become obedient even unto the death of the cross, it tells us here. As Paul writes in in verse number five here, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's important to understand that the church is to be the loving, serving, humble body of Christ. It's important to understand when it says, let this mind be in you, it's not talking about you individually. It's not talking about me individually. It's a collective you that he uses here. Let this mind be in you. Uh, We can think of it if you're from the South as, let this mind be in y'all, you all. It's a collective you. It's not just like a you and you. It's a, let this mind be in you. This is really important to understand this because the idea is this. All of us have to be on the same page together. All of us have to have the same mind. And this goes back to uh, verse number uh, two where it tells us that we're to make sure that we have a unified front, that we're all on the same page together. This flows into verse number four where we say we're looking to take care of one another. And let this mind be in us all as the church. It's our job to have the mind of Christ as the body of Christ. Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven after 40 days after he resurrected from the dead, he ascended into heaven and his physical body was gone. Therefore, he left the body of Christ in his place. That is the local New Testament church. That is you and I uh, together as the body of Christ Sometimes we use the term body of Christ to mean just the people that get together on a Sunday morning to, to, to sing songs and hear preaching. That's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is made up of saved, baptized, committed Christians who are all in for the kingdom, pushing the cause of Christ forward. That's the body of Christ. And let this mind be in you all, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, a few weeks ago, Angela and I uh, had the opportunity to meet a, a family that was visiting uh, Hawaii from uh, Nebraska. We began to talk to them about uh, things in Nebraska. They were from right outside Omaha, and one of their uh, sons had played football at the University of Nebraska, and we talked about that for a little bit and things like that. And then uh, asked him what kind of work he did, and he was a uh, uh, headhunter and recruiter for a, a place that finds uh, people to fill certain positions in a specialized area and stuff like that. We talked about that for a bit. He says, what kind of work do you do? 
Now, normally this is a conversation killer when you tell somebody you're a pastor, just like over and done with. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he goes, that's awesome. And I said, well, I think so. I said, I, I really enjoy what I do and, and I love my work. And, and he said, tell me about your church. And we began to talk about the church and I began to, to brag on you guys and stuff like that and tell them how awesome you were. And he said, you know, he goes, I, I've never been a pastor before. He said, I've been in, in church for, uh, for, for decades. And he goes, if there's one message that the church needs to get across, and he said, you'd be good to, to preach this to your congregation. And I thought to myself, is some guy really giving me advice on how to be a pastor? He was. Uh, and he says, this is really important. He goes, you need to tell the people in your church that they're not there to be entertained. They're in your church to work for the cause of Christ. I said, yeah, we do that. How often? Every Sunday, every other Sunday for sure. Really? Are you sure? I'm totally sure. He goes, well, the problem with churches today is they think it's just this big entertainment show. They're supposed to come and sit and be entertained. And if they don't like the entertainment, they find somewhere and entertain better. But, but that's not the church. Church is called to serve. You need to tell your people that. No, we do. How often? Every week, you know, we, we talk about that. He was just like, well, they don't talk about that in our church. Well, maybe you should find a different church and stop lecturing me on how to, to pastor my church. And so we talked for a little bit, but basically the, the nuts and bolts of the conversation came down to this, is that he said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm fed up with Christians who just want to be entertained and, and don't realize that it's their place to serve, and we're, we're here to get stuff done, not here to be comfortable uh, and to, to be uh, entertained. I thought, man, dude, you are speaking my language. Uh, and so uh, I, I amen them as he preached, and amen, that's good, come on, preach it. Uh, but uh, it was interesting, the idea that, that, hey, we need to make sure that we're training Christians that we're here to serve. Yeah, I know. That's what Jesus did. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He didn't come to be taken care of. He didn't come to, be, uh, to have his needs met. He didn't come to have people serve him. He came to serve and to give his life, the Bible says, a ransom for many. So we need to make sure that we all have that mind. What's that mind? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. First of all, he was submitted to the will of the Father. He was submitted to the Father's will. This is really important. <laughs> When we talk about God's will, it's, uh, it's important that we understand what we're talking about. Sometimes people say, well, well, I'm trying to find God's will for my life. Or one of these days when I find God's will or uh, things like that. And, and sometimes, it's funny, sometimes even like teenagers or young adults or people who are going through life transition, stuff like that, they'll say things like this, like, I'm trying to discover God's will. As if God's will is this elusive thing that doesn't need to be found. And we're trying, trying to kind of on a quest to find it. When we talk about God's will, it's important to define terms. Think about it this way. When I die, I have a last will and testament. What does that mean? That means these are my final wishes. This is my plan that I want carried out and executed upon my death because this is my last will and testament. When we think of God's will, God's will is God's plan on how he wants things carried out, not after his death, but after his death, burial, and here's his plan that he wants carried out for your life. So really, God's will could be used synonymously with God's plan. And God's plan is not some weird mystical thing that we need to discover. It's not some strange thing that needs to be unlocked. It's not something that we might find one day or might not find one day. God's will is simply living in accordance with God's plan. And Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father. God, you have a plan. I don't. I'm willing to trust your plan. That's what, it's simply what it means. 
So God's will is less of a destination and more of a journey that we're on. It's less of one day I'll find God's will. It's more of today I am in God's will. That's the idea behind God's will. And here's the beautiful part about being in God's will. Uh, people used to ask me, uh, you know, where do you see yourself in, in 20 years? It's like, dude, I don't know where I see myself in 20 minutes. Like, can we back up the timeline a little bit? You know, where do you see yourself in five years? I'm not sure where I'm going to be this weekend, but I, I can't fathom where I would be in five years. And sometimes people ask the question like, where do you see yourself in God's will? You know, as if it's, we're, we're forecasting down the road somewhere. Please understand God's will is less of a future thing and it's more of a present thing. And if you decide to live in God's will today, here's how you'll live. You'll live a life of love. You'll live a life of service. You'll live a life of submission. You'll be willing to follow the Father wherever he tells you to go. You'll be willing to do whatever you know you're supposed to do today, tomorrow, and every day after that. And so it's just a matter of one day at a time. And so today, if you're submitted to the will of the Father today, whatever God tells you to do, I'm going to do it today. And then tomorrow morning, you wake up and you spend time in the Word, you spend time in prayer, and you ask the Father what you're supposed to do today, and you follow the, the Father tomorrow on Monday. And then Tuesday morning, you wake up and you say, God, whatever I'm supposed to do today, I need to do that, and point me and lead me and guide me in the right direction. You're submitted to the will of the Father on Tuesday. And then you wake up and you do it again on, on Wednesday. You know what you'll find if you continue to do that every day? You'll wake up 10 years from now dead center in the middle of God's will. Because it's not a, a matter of I need to get from point A to point B. It's a matter of I need to be where the Father needs me to be today. So that's the idea behind this. Had you told me 20 years ago, you, Anthony, are going to be a pastor one day. You're going to start a church. You're going to encourage people to live for Jesus and walk with Jesus. I would have told you 20 years ago, like, bro, I don't even really go to church regularly. And I'm like the last person that anybody would ever want to have as a pastor, for sure. And so that's like not even on my radar, and so had you told me, hey, that's God's will for you, I probably would have ran the other way. And I would have done everything the opposite way to get away from what I saw as God's will. But again, that's why God doesn't show us the destination. God shows us the steps along the way. And it's my job not to be obedient to the destination, but it's my, my job to be obedient to the individual steps along the way. So I just committed, first of all, to, to regular church attendance. Angel and I committed that if the church doors are open, our family will be there, and we're just going to continue to walk with Jesus each and every day. And I committed to spending time in the Word every day, spending time in prayer every day. Then we committed to, to tithing and, and giving 10% of our, our income to the Lord through His local church. We committed to giving to missions. We committed to beginning to learn how to share our faith. And it was one step along the way each and every day. And guess what? 20 years later, I wind up here. The problem is you and I, when we think of God's will, we think of, I want to know the destination and then I'll figure out how I get there. Show me where I'm supposed to go and I'll determine my own path. Sometimes we say, hey, show me the destination and I'll determine whether or not I actually want to go or not. That's not submission. That, you, we want God to reveal his plan so that we can critique it and tweak it. That's not how God works. God gives us the steps and he asks us to be obedient. Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father. Luke chapter two, verse number 49. And he said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Wish you not that I, to know that I was about my father's business? Story, Jesus goes missing. Mary and, and Joseph can't find him anywhere. They look everywhere and they cannot find Jesus. He's lost. And the last place they look is the temple. And they find him in there. He's, he's teaching people the word in the temple. And they come, they go, Jesus, we've been looking for you everywhere. 
We couldn't find you. And he's like, guys, you weren't looking very hard because you should have known that I would have been about my father's business. Jesus says, guys, this is the whole reason that I came. I didn't come to, to, to have fun. You know, Jesus would have been probably close to teenager years at this point. He didn't come to play a couple games of kickball. He came to be about his father's business. That's what he was supposed to do. And so we see Jesus, even in his formative years, was submitted to the father. John chapter 5, verse number 30 says, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the father with, which hath sent me. John chapter 5, verse number 30 is a curious verse because Jesus says, I can of my own self do nothing. Now, uh, we'll pause here for just a second. Next week is going to be really good. I'm excited about it, and I know that you are too. Uh, next week, we're going to, to uh, unpack uh, the deity of Christ as found in Philippians chapter 2 uh, and other passages of Scripture. Next week is going to be more of a, a study of Christology as opposed to a, just an a exegesis of the passage itself. But, but here's a word, and if you want to study ahead, uh, if you want to be a Bible nerd for a week, here's your word for the week, all right? Kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis. That's all I'm going to give you. Now, if you want to go down the rabbit hole of canonic theology and stuff like that on YouTube and stuff like that, you're welcome to do that. Just don't, don't make any theological decisions based on things you found on the internet, though. Let me just tell you that, okay? But if you want to study ahead, next week we're going to take a look at the deity of Christ and what it means that Christ emptied himself. But this verse, John 5.30, sometimes gets misunderstood because Jesus says, I of myself can do nothing, but I have to do the will of the Father. It's almost as if Jesus is powerless. But Jesus is not saying here, I'm powerless, because we know that Jesus, because he is God, has all power. We know that Jesus is what we refer to as omnipotent, which is an attribute of God. He's all-powerful. And so Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself. He's more saying, I won't do anything of myself. It's not a matter of can or can't. It's a matter of will or won't. Jesus says, I won't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. I won't do anything except what the Father wills me to do because I'm not going to do my own thing. And so we see Jesus living a life submitted to the Father. John chapter 12, verse number 49, Jesus said, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And so we see Jesus living a life of total submission to the Father. Now this is unique, unlike any other instance throughout all of human history, because we have God who became a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, while he was here, was fully God and was fully man. And he says, although I created everything, although I sustain everything, although I am God in the flesh, I choose to submit myself to the plan of the Father. And so we see anybody if they should be proud. If we see anybody who should be boasting. If we should see anyone who should be talking about having their own way. What he says is, I'm not trying to do my own thing here. I'm only going to do what the Father tells me to do. I'm not even going to say, again, uh, John, chapter, uh, uh, John chapter 12, verse number 49. For I've not spoken to myself, but the Father which has sent me. He gave me a commandment. What I should say and what I should speak. Jesus says this. I don't even want to say anything that isn't what the Father told me to say. That is submission. Now, about that compared to you and I. We want to have our own way. We want to do our own thing. We want to say what we want, do what we want, go where we want. We don't want to submit to anybody or anything. 
In our society, submission basically means weakness. You're not willing to do what you want to do, or you don't have the guts or courage to do what you want to do. You're submitting yourself to someone or something else. But you and I are nobodies. You and I have nothing. You and I are powerless in and of ourselves, but we choose to submit ourselves to the Father if we do things the right way. So Jesus gives us a pattern for submission. Now, for you and I, this requires a continual attitude adjustment. That's why verse number five says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You and I don't think this way automatically. We don't automatically think to ourselves, hey, I want to submit myself to the Father. But everything we think, everything we do, everything we plan, everything we say should be asked the question first. Would the Father have me do this? Is this the way that the Father would have me behave? So what the Father would have me to say? This opportunity that I have at work, is that something that the Father would have me do? But oftentimes we don't run it through that matrix. We run it through our own matrix of, is this good for me? Is this what I want? Will this advance me? Will this advance my standing? Will this give me a better reputation? Will this bring me more money? But we seldom stop to ask, hmm, is this what the Father would have me do? That's the life of submission, but it requires an attitude adjustment on our part. That's why, again, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's why Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are so critical for you and I. And those are two verses that you should automatically put in, in your memory bank. You need to memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Good start there. Take your body. When it talks about your body, it's talking about your entire being, your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, everything, and give it to God and present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. But verse, verse two goes on, and it's, it's, it's glorious. Listen to this. And be not conformed to this world. That word conformed means to be pressed into the mold of. Don't go into the cookie cutter shape that the world wants to stick you in. Don't be like everybody else. Don't follow the rest of the world to destruction and foolishness. Be not conformed to this world. Here's what he says. But be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your life by changing the way that you think. Now again, this is not the power of positive thinking. This is not whatever I think I can achieve. This is not talking about that. It's talking about changing the way that I think, which changes my heart, which changes my life, is what it's talking about. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. You don't have that mind automatically. You don't automatically think through decisions and think, how will this affect my walk with God? How will this affect my testimony as a Christian? How will this affect those that are in my sphere of influence? How will this proclaim the glory of God in my life? How will this advance the kingdom of God? We generally, automatically, by nature, don't run through those types of questions. We ask, do I want this? Is this good for me? How will this prosper me? That's what we ask first. But Christians can't be like that. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was submitted to the will of the Father. For me, I used to, uh, every week, I still do, I grab a sheet of paper and I write out my week. And so I have a, a weekly calendar, hour by hour, and I write out my plans for each hour, what I'm going to do, and you know, study and reading and appointments and things like that. And uh, So I write out my week and plan my week out. I used to write out my, uh, my plan in pen. 
And man, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. I have perfectionist tendencies in certain areas of my life. Some things I can let slide. Uh, you can ask my wife, she'll tell you those areas. Uh, but there's certain things that like, I just, you don't want to mess with. Uh, things like, uh, like, my, my things that I write on, I don't like to mess stuff up. I hate crossing stuff out. Uh, my wife, she is ruthless. She'll write a list and she'll scribble stuff. And it's just like, you can't scribble on that. And then she'll scribble the other direction. It's just like, ah, I get lines crossing down the things that you cross out. It drives me nuts. I'm not like that. I can't do it. And so when something would happen on my calendar and I'd have to scratch something out, I would get mad. I would tear my calendar up and I'd rewrite my calendar and pen again. Somebody cancel an appointment. It's just like, oh, I can't believe you just messed my calendar up. And so it's like, mm. and I can't do whiteout either because whiteout just looks like I tried, but I didn't try hard enough. And so I just, oh man. You know what I started doing? Crazy thought. I wrote my calendar in pencil. And now when somebody cancels, I can just erase it. Now when an appointment runs over, I just erase it and move the line down and cross it over again. It's glorious. And you know what? Many times we write our plans for our life in pen. And we get frustrated when God changes something. It's just like, oh, come on. What are you doing? You know, I got this plan worked out. I got like every step planned out. And you go and mess everything up and just like, what am I supposed to do with this now? I've already written it. Like, and, and then what happens is our plans aren't submitted to the Father's plans. We got our own plans. I got a path through life. And here's the thing. And we want to be spiritual about our path that we have. So we say, hey, God, I've got life figured out. I know where I'm supposed to go. I know all the steps along the way to do it. And I just need you to bless every step. Could you do that? That would be great. Amen. And we say, I'm so submitted to the Father. I've asked him to bless every step of my plan. No. You've like baked your own cake and you want God to put the icing on top of it. And then when God doesn't want to put the icing on the top and he smashes your cake, you get mad at him about it, right? God doesn't work that way. We don't make our own plans and ask God to bless it. Now, hold on for a second. Are you saying I shouldn't plan at all? That's not what I said. I'm saying your plans need to be to God. What I, what I see you doing, I'm not really sure, but I want to be sure. And if this is not right, would you fix it for me? I remember when we, we came to Honolulu and we uh, uh, had looked at this building and we began to pray that God would give us this building. I prayed this. I prayed, God, if you would have us to have this building, we would love to make this our home here in Honolulu and use this as a sending station for the gospel. But if this is not the right place, we don't want it. And so, but if it is, I pray that you make the way abundantly clear and I pray that you would blow the doors wide open. And man, it was crazy. God blew the doors wide open. Now, now, again, following God's plan isn't a matter of, you know, throwing out the fleece and seeing if it, if it gets wet or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the doors continue to open, that God's blessing that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying this. I'm talking about being submitted to God's plan. And if you want something else, do that. But here's where I see you leading, and I'm asking you to give me wisdom and direction on that. But at the end of the day, it's all submitted to God. I remember when... Uh, uh, I joined the Navy right out of high school. I met my wife, uh, Angela, when I was stationed in Pensacola. We got married in Pensacola, moved here to Honolulu. Uh, I finished up my last two years in the Navy here. We got out. We started a computer training and consulting company in town. We were making really good money. Uh, and I had some goals for life. I'll tell you my top three goals. I remember them like they were yesterday. Goal number one, I was uh, 24 years old at the time. Goal number one, retire by 30. It's funny, huh? Goal number two, buy my wife a really big house by the beach. Goal number three, own a Lamborghini. That was it. Three goals in life. No lie. That's it. And if you hit these three criteria, you are successful. And you've made it. Now you look back at that and you laugh. I look back at that 
And frankly, I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but I just want to be honest with you. But that was my plan for life. And, and here's the crazy part about it. At 24 years old, I was well on my way to getting those things accomplished. Well on my way. And had we stayed in where we were at that point, I guarantee I would have hit all three of those and I would have blown the doors off of it. No doubt about it. But here's the thing. There came a point where I had to take my plans and submit them to the Father and go, is this really what we're supposed to do? And I began to take my plans and I began to evaluate them in light of Scripture and say, do any of these things match up with the reason that God created me? And the answer was none of those three did. And here's the awesome thing. Lest you think that submitting your hopes, dreams, goals, aspirations to God means that you'll lose out. Because oftentimes people think, well, if I follow Jesus and I really like go all in, then I'm going to lose what I want. Here's a beautiful promise from God's word. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not like a, a cute saying. That's a promise from the Bible. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And it's a, it was an awesome thing to see myself delight in the Lord and he gave me the desires of my heart. It was crazy. And so the, the funny thing about that is, is if you look and you say, okay, 24-year-old me submitted my desires to the Lord. Did he give me the delighted myself in the Lord. Did he give me the desires of my heart? Absolutely. Did he give me a really big house by the beach? No. Did I retire at 30? No. Did I own a Lamborghini? No. Well, how did he give you the desires of my heart? Here's the beautiful part about it. When you delight yourself in the Lord, he changes the desires of your heart. Crazy stuff. Crazy. You know, the funny thing is, like, I would be bored if I was retired, you know? Like, I need to do something. I would have missed out on being able to be a part of a mighty move of God that is called who we call a Baptist church had I retired at 30 and just decided to go play golf somewhere. That wouldn't be life. I would have missed out on the things that my heart really craved. Had I bought a big, huge house by uh, the beach somewhere, I would have trusted in my own riches and what I had. I wouldn't have trusted in the Lord for anything from then on out. Had I delighted myself in material things that this world had to offer, I would have had a car that I had to pay a ridiculous amount of insurance on and it would break down and have mechanical problems and other issues. And at the end of the day, a car is just a car. And nice cars just have four wheels and a steering wheel. That's it. And I would have missed out on really good things. So I delighted myself in the Lord. And you know what he gave me? He gave me a, a marriage that's brought forth really good spiritual fruit. He's given me children that love me and love Jesus. He's given me a church family like nothing I've ever experienced a day in my life. I've been in church my whole life. I've never in my life been a part of a church like this ever before. And I got to be a part of this. God's allowed me to have influence in people's lives. God's allowed me to lead other people to Christ and take people from the, the, the depths of hell and give them a home in heaven. He's allowed me to be a part of that process. That's huge. God's allowed me to invest in the lives of, of men and couples in their marriages God's allowed me to disciple people and help people become committed followers of Christ. I would have missed out on every single bit of that had I continued to go with my own plan. So, so glad that I submitted that to God and he gave me the desire of my heart. And let me just tell you this too. The desire of your heart is not whatever material thing you think in your mind right now. Please understand that. The desire of your heart is not a bigger house or have all your debt paid off. The, the, the desire of your heart is not to, to have material possessions or to get that job. The desire of your heart is not to, to advance your education or anything like that. Here's what the desire of your heart is. You desire love. You desire joy. You desire peace. You desire a spirit of long-suffering. 
You desire, does anybody see where this is going? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's what your heart really craves. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, you will receive in the depths of your soul a fruit that money can't buy. But it, it, here's the, the thing. All of this gets kicked off by submission. I'm willing to set everything I have to the side to let the Father do what he wants to do. Look, I got my own plans, but they're all submitted to the Father. And every plan that I've ever had that wasn't submitted to the Father has always ended miserably, every single time. And there have been times in my life, and if you're honest, there's been times in your life too, where you thought, you might have said the words that your plan was, were submitted to the Father, but they really weren't. You were really trying hard to do your own thing. And then when God would shut doors, you would try to reopen them. And when God would bolt the door shut, you would sh- try to shimmy the lock. And when they stuck a padlock on the outside, you basically just started kicking on the door to try to get it open. We're just trying to see if the Lord will open this door. He shut it. Move on. But we just want what we want. No, no, no. I want what the Father wants. Because his plans are always best. And here's the thing. Submission means that you believe that God is really good. That's the hard part about this is that submission is a belief that God is really good. Because I have to be willing to say, I want this, but God didn't give it to me, so I trust that my father's plans are better. Look, if my kids had their own, their own way, they would eat Domino's pizza every single night and drink Mountain Dew for every single meal. But because I'm a good father, I limit those things because I know what's best for them. No, you're going to eat grilled chicken for dinner tonight. No, you're going to finish your steak. No, you're going to eat broccoli. No, you need to finish your corn. No, you're not going to have dessert tonight. All these things, why? Because I'm a terrible person? No, because I know what's best for them, and I'm a good father that loves them and wants the best for them. So many times the father, when he denies his things or, or basically takes our plans and pushes them to the side, it's not because he's a terrible father. It's because he loves us dearly, and he wants the best for us. So we have to be willing to say, hey, I'm submitted to the Father. I'm going to have the mind of Jesus Christ, and I'm not trying to do my own thing. I just want to do what the Father wants to do. I'm not trying to make a name for myself. I'm trying to make a name for the Father. I'm not trying to, to, to have my way. I'm trying to have the Father's way. I'm not trying to say what I want to say. I'm trying to say what the Father wants to say. That's the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But to continue attitude adjustment. See, our ministry is different from Jesus's, but we can still have the same mindset and attitude. You and I didn't come into this world to save the world from sin. You and I didn't come into this world to uh, redeem mankind. You and I didn't come into this world to save mankind from its sinful condition. That's not our job. But you know what the funny thing is? We did come into this world to glorify the Father, which is exactly what Jesus did. And while my job is different than Jesus' job, the mindset and the end result should be the same. The glory of God, the will of the Father, that's my attitude. And frankly, it doesn't matter if you are a stay-at-home mom or you work at a desk or you work in an office or you work with your bare hands. Whatever you do, you're created to glorify the Father. And God has put you in a position where only you can do the things that you do. And that's why he needs you engaged. That's why this is not a command that's given to an individual person, it's given to the church. Let this mind be in you all, which was also in Christ Jesus. That we have a job to do, and the job that we do as we do it has to be with the mind of Jesus Christ. 
Now this requires that we live in humility. We have to live in humility. We took a look at pride last week and how destructive it is. We're not gonna belabor this, but we can't talk about service without talking about humility. Again, to humble myself under the Lord means to trust his leading, to trust his judgment, to trust his plan, to trust his will. And that requires us to live in humility. Humility is just a real recognition of who we are. And ignorance is a fertile breeding ground for pride. The less we know, the more proud we are. When I talk with some people about the gospel, sometimes I'll say, hey, has there been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior? And they say, well, I don't really, can't really think of any time. And I said, well, let me ask you the question this way. If you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And if people aren't saved or born again, the majority of the time people will say, I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven. And I say, based on what? And again, nine times out of 10, people are going to heaven based on the fact that, anybody want to guess? I am a good person, right? I'm a good person. Oh, okay. And uh, if you've never had the opportunity to, to watch uh, Ray Comfort's videos on, on YouTube, uh, The Way of the Master, he basically uses the Ten Commandments and the law as a way to prove that you're not really that good of a person. If you've never seen him before, you can watch a, a couple of clips of him. He, he's a master at this technique. He basically does man-on-the-street interviews where he goes up to people and asks them a question, puts a microphone in their face. Do you think that you're a good person? And people say, yeah, I'm a good person. And he says, good. And he begins to lead them through the Ten Commandments. Has there been a time in your life you've ever told a lie? And they say, well, yeah, I've lied before. What does that make you? A liar. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have uh, you know, been disobedient to your parents? Yeah. You're disobedient to your parents. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've used God's name as a curse word? Yeah, you're a blasphemer. Has there ever been a time where you've looked at another person in lust? Jesus calls that adultery. Yeah, you're an adulterer. Man, he goes through the list. And before you know it, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, murderer, adulterer. And you realize, whoa. He says, do you still think that you're a good person? And (laughs) they go, when you put it that way, probably not. Oh, okay. So again, ignorance allows us to think, I'm a good person. Ignorance allows me to think, I'm a pretty smart guy. Ignorance allows me to think, I've got life kind of much, pretty much figured out, you know? I've got my own thing going on, and you know, God can bless that. I think I'll be okay. And the more ignorant that we are, the more proud we will be. That's why I encourage you to be in God's word every single day of the world because the Bible points out to me every single day how short I come of God's expectations, how much I need God's grace every single day. And so be in God's word because it will point out the fact that you don't have it all together. Two different accounts that we find in the gospels of this story. One uh, in Matthew chapter 20, uh, James and John's mom is walking with Jesus. In the other instance, we see James and John talking with Jesus. But Matthew 20, 20, then came the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, what wilt thou? Now, Jesus is walking along this road and, and James and John's mom come up to Jesus and talks to Jesus, says, hey, Jesus, I need a favor from you. He says, what do you need? Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if James and John were like, mom, stop it. Don't talk to Jesus about this. And she's like, no, I want to talk to Jesus, but this is really important. And it's like, come on, mom. Or whether they were like, well, mom, we really want to talk to Jesus, but we're kind of scared. And she's like, oh, I'll go talk to Jesus. I don't have a problem with that. And she like went and took the bull by the horns and talked to Jesus. I don't know how it went. But I imagine it was an awkward conversation. It definitely was based on the information that we have. 
But before we get into the specifics of the, of the, the story, I want you to get this. Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh. God became a man and dwelt among us. John chapter one, verse number 14 says, God was walking down a road. And this woman came to God and she said, I need something from you. And what was his response? What do you need? That's the God that we serve. Please understand that, that our God is a loving, kind, gracious, merciful God who delights in meeting your needs. Can you imagine if I was God and I was walking down the road and somebody says, oh, excuse me, can I get something from you? And be like, huh, can you get something from me? How about I get something from you? Huh? Do you know who I am? Like, I need your worship. I need your obedience. I need, but he said, hey, what can I do? How can I help? That's the spirit of Christ. And so, again, the idea of humility is just who Jesus is. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Hey, I need something from you. Hey, how can I help? And here's what he said, what, what she said. Matthew chapter 20, verse number 20. She saith unto him, Grant these my two sons, that they may sit one on thy right hand and the other on the left in the kingdom. So when your kingdom comes, I want James on one side, John on the other side, you in the middle, Jesus. Now, can you imagine the ask of that? Like, like hey, I know you're king and all, but when you're king, could, could my boy sit on both sides of your throne? Never mind the fact that there's 10 other guys that are in the group that's like, what does John's mom think he's doing? Like, seriously, like, there's 10 of us and there's only two spots around the throne. Those two guys get it? What the world? And here's what Jesus asked. Jesus says, Anthony said, you know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Hey, hold up. You don't even know what you're asking here. And he says to James and John, do you guys think that you could go through what I'm getting ready to go through and come through it on the other side the way that I'm going to come through it and you deserve what I deserve? Do you think you can drink the same cup that I can? And what do they say? Yeah, we can do that. What? Guys, you are so clueless. And we look back at this and go, these guys have no idea. Like, you don't understand that Christ is getting ready to be imprisoned, beaten, crucified, laid in a buried tomb. He's getting ready to rise again the third day victorious over sin, death, and the grave. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven and going to come back and rule his kingdom. And you think you can do all that too? Guys, you're clueless. But what was the difference? Were these guys so puffed up with pride? I think they were just ignorant. They didn't know any better. They're just like, hey, somebody's going to sit on the side of him. <laughs> no, no problem asking. I mean, worst thing you can say is no, right? Guys, you don't even understand. And that ignorance caused pride in their heart. Many times it's not carnality. Many times it's just we just don't know better that we're so proud. You take the woman at the well when Jesus sat down and talked to her in John chapter 4. Jesus says, hey, can I have something to drink? And she says, what are you thinking? First of all, asking of me, a Samaritan, you a Jew, something to drink. Second of all, why are you going to come to the well in the middle of the day and not bring something to drink with? Like, what were you thinking? Like, she's almost rebuking Jesus. Like, what in the world were you thinking? And then she goes on to say this. She said, we drink from this well that our father Jacob dug for us and for his children. Do you think that you're better than Jacob? And like, I don't know about you, but if that was me, I would have been like, woman, you have no idea. Am I better than Jacob? Please. 
Like, like I wrestled with Jacob. What are you talking about, right? But what did Jesus say? Jesus just continues the conversation. Now later he'll say, hey, you've heard that Messiah will come? Yeah, that's me. That's me. You talk about humility? But this woman was so proud. Why? Because she just didn't know any better. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than Jacob? And many times you and I can be puffed up with pride because we don't realize who we are and what we deserve. <laughs> One of the greatest, uh, most foolish statements that Christians can make is I just want what I deserve. No, you don't, because if you were well-versed in the Bible, you'd realize the, the only thing that you deserve is God's wrath and judgment. You don't want what you deserve. You want God's grace in your life. But we need to be careful. That's why we need to be in the Word every day. We need to allow the Word to search us and change us because ignorance creates pride. Again, the fact of the matter is, here's what we deserve. We deserve to go to hell when we die. We deserve God's wrath and judgment. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God has a standard that you and I need to, to meet up to and you and I fall short every single time. It doesn't matter whether you fall six inches short or six miles short. You're short of God's standard. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says. All have sinned, there's none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. The wages of our sin, what we've earned as a result of our sin is death, not just physical death. We're all gonna die one day, but the Bible says after this, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment all of us will stand before God one day. And again, friend, the idea that you and I can bargain our way into heaven or talk about our good versus our bad, again, that's ignorance on your part because it's just not gonna work. And when I talk about ignorance, I'm not talking about you're dumb or you're stupid. I'm talking about you just don't know the facts. That's what it means to be ignorant. I've talked to people before and shared the gospel with them, explained to them, hey, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. The only way that you can get to heaven is to put your faith in Jesus Savior and repent of your sins. It's the only way to go to heaven. I said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll just work it out with him. And it's not going to work out like that. I guarantee you. Well, I've been good enough that I think I've earned my spot. I guarantee you, you have not earned your spot. Guaranteed. And if you think that you can get to heaven another way than Jesus Christ, then that means you don't believe the Bible. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He says, I'm the only way to heaven. That's it. And so again, if you believe there's another way to heaven other than Jesus, you are mistaken. Jesus says, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. John chapter three, verse number three, the only hope that you have for heaven is to be saved. Now being saved doesn't mean becoming a Baptist, doesn't mean joining our church, doesn't mean getting baptized. We'll baptize a, a person today over at Alamona Beach Park. It's gonna be awesome. You need to come for that. That's not how you get saved. You get saved by saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe he is the only way to heaven and I know that without him, I will go to hell. But I'm asking God to forgive me and save me of my sins today. If you would do that, God could save you just like that. You don't have to come to a class. You don't have to, 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 to be catechized or, or confirmed or anything like that. It's a matter of saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. I believe that he died for my sin and I'm putting my faith and trust in him today as my savior and I'm turning from my sin. Faith and repentance is the only way that you can get saved. You don't have to do that in a church building. Otherwise, you're on your own. And if you think that you can get to heaven another way, you, you, you've been mistaken because Jesus is the only way. That's why humility comes by wisdom. The more that I read of God's word, the more that I understand the Bible, the more humble I will become. The more that I recognize God's grace, the more I recognize I need God's grace, 
You take a look at, at two men in, in the Bible that were legitimately world superpowers at that time. King David, King Solomon. King Solomon would be the wisest and richest man to ever live on the face of the planet ever in all of human history. And if you read through the book of Proverbs, you realize he had great dependence upon God. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, he realized he tried to go the materialistic worldly route and it was incredibly empty. And both of those men realized the only hope that I have is in, in God. And they were willing to humble themselves and put themselves at the mercy of God and be submitted to his plan. Talk about humility. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the greatest act of humility ever known to man. The fact that God would become a man John chapter 1, verse number 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse number 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Oh, man. You talk about humility. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how it it worked out in heaven, but, it, but I like to try to think things through in my mind. Again, we don't find any of this in the Bible. It's just kind of thoughts in my head. The Bible says that, that in the beginning was God. Jesus always has been. And before Jesus came to Bethlehem's manger, he was sitting up in the throne room of the Father receiving worship of the angels. He was there receiving worship of all of those in heaven, there with his Father, beholding the glory of God, involved in receiving the glory of God, in heaven, in a perfect place that was without sin. And the Bible says, in the fullness of time was come that Christ was born of a woman. And when the time came, I don't know how it looked, if God the Father looked at God the Son and said, Son, it's time. He says, all right. But at some point, Jesus Christ left heaven to become a baby in a manger to walked the road that was set before him. Not his own path, but the path that God had set for him. And he humbled himself. He came to a, a group of people who did not receive him as king, but rejected him as a blasphemer. Again, John chapter one, he came into his own and his own received him not. He didn't come to a, a huge parade that was given for a king. He came to be raised by a couple of broke teenagers in a manger stall. That's how he was born. He didn't grow up with all the, uh, the nice, comfortable things. He grew up in a home of a carpenter. He probably did manual labor as a teenager in his young adult years. He was willing to do his father's will and to, to announce the kingdom of God was coming, draw people to himself, and he was rejected. He was mocked. People blasphemed him and called him a blasphemer. They made up lies about him. They tried to kill him in the streets whenever he would go out in public. They set up a plan to capture him and beat him, torture him, put him to death, be crucified. And here's the crazy thing. He knew it was all coming, every bit of it. When he chose his apostles, he knew that there would be one that would betray him. He knew it. He knew that by becoming man, he knew what the end looked like because he was God. He knew that crucifixion was coming. He knew the pain of the crucifixion. He knew that his father would forsake him in his greatest hour of need he knew it and here's what he said you're worth it you're worth it you're worth it and i'm willing to walk this path because it's the path of my father and here's a crazy thought about it if you read uh, isaiah chapter 53 
It talks about the physical pain that Jesus Christ went through and the beatings that he went through. And Isaiah has this curious phrase in there, but it pleased the father to bruise him. You look at that and you say, that's sick. What father could get enjoyment from the mistreatment and abuse of his own child? It goes on to say that the suffering of one would lead to the redemption of many. Oh, God's got a bigger plan in place. And you know what Jesus says? I'll go. I'm fully in, fully submitted. I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what the Father wants me to do. I don't want to say what I want to say. I want to say what the Father wants me to say because I know the end result. And that's, that's, as, that's as humble as humble comes. So how do we live? We live in submitted service. Again, submission results in service. I want to do what God wants me to do. Good, he's got a job for you to do. Jesus says, I didn't come for people to serve me. I came to serve other people. We live, first of all, in service to the king. (laughs) Jesus came, submitted to the Father, and here's what he said in John chapter 13, verse number 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant's not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Hey, I'm greater than my Father. That's why he sent me, because I'm here to do his will. By the same token, you are not greater than your master. And again, just about any time in the New Testament where you find that word servant, it can be used interchangeably with the word bond slave. So again, if we really understand what Jesus is saying here is that when you and I question God or we rebel against God's plan because we got our own thing going on, you have said that you as the slave know better than your master and you don't want to do what the master says, you want to do your own thing. (laughs) A slave rebellion is what it is. But again, when we recognize I've been purchased out of the slave market of sin, the Bible word redeemed means purchased back from something, I've been redeemed and adopted into the family of God to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, like, that's as good as it gets. What a privilege to serve the King. So we live, first of all, in service to the King. Second, we live in service to others. And again, we need to understand that the Christian life is not about serving us. It's about serving God and serving others. That's it. And the funny thing is, sometimes people will begin to say, well, when do I get to do what I want to do? Um, you don't. <laughs> well, when do I get what's coming to me? Um, you already did. Well, when do I get to, to live for me? You don't. And unfortunately, many times people get into Christianity because they want to get their ticket punched to heaven. They want somebody that's going to listen to their prayers and act on their behalf and do things for them. But you, you've missed the, the Christian life if that's what you think it's about. It's not about you and what you can get. It's about what you and what you can give. But what do you have to offer? How can you serve? What can you do? What do you bring to the table? How do you advance the kingdom? How do you move the ball up the field? That's our job. It's not what's in it for me. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just a few pages back in your Bibles. First Corinthians 10, I want you to see this verse. It's common passage of Scripture, so you might think to yourself, oh yeah, I already know that, but I want you to see the context of it. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 31. 
1 Corinthians 10, 31, but therefore you eat or drink whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You look at that and you say, well, I've heard that before. So that means whether you're, you're, you're taking a drink of water or you're eating a sandwich, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And he said, well, how can I eat a sandwich to the glory of God? Well, you, then you need to look at every area of your life. If you eat a sandwich today, do you thank God for that sandwich? Do you recognize that what you have came from him? Are you grateful? Do you live a life of service back for the things that you've received? Maybe you go to a restaurant. Do you treat the people at the restaurant for the glory of God? Or do you expect to snap your fingers and people come over running to you to do what you want and when you leave, you leave 50 cents on the table? That's not living to the glory of God. I'm talking about every area of your life to the glory of God. The way I treat my wife, the way I treat my children, the way I treat a stranger, the thoughts that I think, the music that I listen to, the, the, the entertainment that I enjoy, the hobbies I'm involved with, it all factors back to the glory of God. Good, move on. Verse number 32. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, neither to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. The word offense doesn't mean don't offend anybody. It just means don't make people think poorly of or cause people to sin because of the way that you live your life. So in other words, you need to have a stellar Christian testimony that always makes Jesus look good. It's good. Next, verse number 33. This is submission. This is humility. Even as I please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be, oh, snaps. What's that word? Saved. It's almost like that whole Great Commission, go, win, baptize, teach, is directly connected to the way that I live my life every single day. You got it. It's all connected. And so I live a life of humble, submitted service, not so that I get a pat on the back, not so that I put a feather in my cap or I get a button to wear on my shirt, but I live in humble service to the king so that other people can be saved. That's massive. And you might look at that and go, wow, Paul is like super Christian. What a guy. And man, that's the end of the chapter. That's a good chapter. Paul didn't write this letter with chapter and verse breaks. So verse num chapter number 11, verse number one is a continuation of that thought. And what does he say? Be ye followers of me as I am also of Christ. In other words, I'm setting the example. You guys need to follow it. Hmm. So live every day to the glory of God in every single thing that you do. Secondly, don't do anything that makes Jesus look bad. Third of all, you need to make sure that you're living your life a way that serves other people so that they have the opportunity to know Jesus and be saved and you need to set the example for other people to follow. Man. Well, that's hard. Of course it is. That's why we need to have this mind that was also in Christ Jesus. There you go. So, it's a life of service. And lest you, lest you have the wrong mindset, well, this stinks. I didn't sign up for Christianity to serve God and serve other people. Then you haven't even begun to enjoy being a Christian yet. You haven't. One of the best parts of being a Christian is having the opportunity to serve other people. To serve the Lord in a way that honors and glorifies Him. And last uh, Sunday afternoon, we had a, probably 80 people who showed up here to pull weeds and paint over graffiti in our neighborhood and stuff like that. We had legitimately probably 50 bags of weeds and garbage to haul off of just stuff that we picked up in, in an hour and a half in our community. Nobody got paid for it. We just did it because we love the Lord. We want to make Him look good. We want to serve other people. 
We didn't ask for anything from it. The idea is this. You begin to enjoy Christianity the more you get to serve. If you have a consumer mindset that, that Jesus exists to make you happy, you'll be really disappointed in life. If you think church is here to entertain you or to, to, to scratch your itch, you've missed out on what, what Christianity is about. Because there was a time in Angela and I's life where we were living for ourselves and we came to church because we liked the people there that were nice to us. We sometimes liked the music. We sometimes liked the, the message. And the times we didn't, we griped about it on the way home. That song that guy sung today, I didn't really care for that. That was kind of lame. Oh, we should sing more songs that I like or songs that I know or songs that, 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 that I enjoy. That message today, I know it's from the Bible, but it didn't really apply to me. It wasn't really, didn't really do anything for me. Yeah. It was about me. But everything flipped when I began to say, I've, I've been at church for six weeks with this guy. I never even met him. I'm going to go over and introduce myself to him. Hey, I feel kind of awkward doing this, but I, I have seen you for six weeks. I don't even know your name. Could you tell me your name? Because now it wasn't about me. It's about somebody else. Before I would have been like, I don't know that guy. I got nothing in common with that guy. I got no reason to talk to that guy. But it flips when it's not about me anymore. It's about other people. Who's the supreme example of this? Jesus, obviously. Hello. And, and John says in 1 John, if, if, you, if you need a really solid rebuke, read 1 John. <laughs> it's encouraging because, you know, God is love and, and all that other stuff. But John hits really hard. And he basically says, if you call yourself a Christian, then you should walk the way that your Savior walks. And if a man said that he hated his brother, the love of the Father is not in him. That calls into question whether or not you've truly received the love of God if you can have hatred towards somebody else. And John breaks it down really hard, but here's what he says. If you believe in, in Jesus Christ, then you should walk in the way that he walked. He's the example. If I call myself a Christian, I gotta live the way that Jesus lived. If I, if I didn't, I'm living as a fake Christian. I'm not a real Christ follower if I'm not following Christ. Hello. The whole purpose of being a Christ follower is following Christ. I got six questions for you to think about this week, and we're done. First of all, am I living with eternity as my first priority? This is big. I will confess to you that I got saved when I was nine. I grew up in a church that was not about evangelism, was not about practical Christian living. And I felt like at nine years old in my teenage years that I got my ticket punched to heaven and I was good. We're just going to hang on until Jesus comes. But then something changed. I got into a really solid church that began to preach the Bible and challenged us to share our faith with other people the way the Great Commission commands. <laughs> and I began to be awoken to the idea that this, every person spends eternity somewhere. Everybody. Here's the bigger thing of that. Everybody not only spends eternity somewhere, but I have the opportunity to change that. That's huge. So that the guy that's taking my, my order at the drive-thru at McDonald's, he's going to go to heaven or hell when he dies. Again, if I believe the Bible, it's a point in a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. And just by giving him the gospel on a four-by-six card, I have the opportunity to change his eternity. That's big. I'm going to take it one step further. 
we're seated this morning in a church hearing the Bible preached. I know most of your story, how you came to faith in Christ and how you got saved and what God's done in your life and things like that. But literally 20 yards across the street is a building that's 42 stories high that's home to probably 1,200 people. And if statistics and demographics for our city bear any weight, probably 90% of them don't know Jesus and are on their way to hell. I don't know about you, but there are nights that I can't sleep because of that. That bothers me. And it should bother you that, that people that you work with, people that you trade emails with on email chains and forgot to send the attachment, now you're sending it, those people are going to spend eternity somewhere and you have the opportunity to change that. Or you can say, I'm good. <laughs> of course, because it's all about you. Or you can say, I got to do something about this. And let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's the idea. And so I want you to stay alert to the idea that everybody spends eternity somewhere and you have the opportunity to change that. Our little green cards we have, this is who we call a Baptist church, on the back is the gospel. That's it. And if you believe the Bible, and you should, Romans chapter one, verse number 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. Hmm. So when you hand out an invitation to church, you're not just handing out an invitation to church, you're handing out an invitation to church with the power of God on it. Oh my goodness, this is so much bigger than you and I. But you have to have a mindset that I want to live for eternity. Next. Do I have any entanglements with worldly things that are holding me back? Is there anything that's keeping me from being able to move forward? Is there any plans that I have that I'm not really willing to submit to the Father yet? I'm just going to keep hanging on to my plans and hope that he blesses it later. You see, when our family moved here to start who we call a Baptist church, we were living in Southern California. We were on staff at a church. We served there for 10 years. I was making a decent salary by the time that I left, and uh, our kids were in a Christian school, and it was, was part of my compensation package. I paid for it for my kids to go to Christian school. Great church. I believe one of the greatest churches in America. We were able to be a part of that. We bought a house, a 3,000-square-foot house, big backyard, three-car garage, end of a cul-de-sac. We put a basketball hoop in the backyard. We bought a dog. We were good. And we said, this is where we're supposed to be. But then the question came, are we really maximizing God's glory right now or are we just really comfortable? And the answer is we were comfortable. So we didn't just erase a couple of things on our plans that we have. We kind of wadded them up and started with a blank sheet of paper and said, God, what are we, where are we supposed to be? And, you know, nine years later, here we are. But it came from, well, we, we just got the kids in school. We can't pick up and move. <laughs> we just bought a dog. We can't just, like, give it away. We just bought a house. What are we supposed to do, sell it? And there were worldly entanglements that were keeping us on the short term from really being able to go where God wanted us to go. Some of you, it's a dating relationship, a friendship, a group of friends, a hobby, some type of entertainment that you have that's got you sucked in so tight that you say, mm, I can't do that right now. Maybe it's a promise of what you think might be coming later or a desire for, for, for money or wealth or status or whatever that's keeping you back from being where God wants you to be. Man, let it go. Next, is there pride in my heart either through ignorance or carnality? Pride's a difficult thing to root out. 
We have men's uh, small groups on uh, Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock. We have four different groups of guys that rotate one every four weeks. If you're not part of a guy's group, show up this uh, Saturday at 8 o'clock. We'll get you plugged into a group. We've been talking about pride over the last several weeks, and man, pride is ugly. And pride's weird because it shifts, you know. What might be pride in me might not be pride in another person, or I might not struggle with pride in this area, but I struggle with it in a different area. And so this is even a, a hard question to, di- to self-diagnose. Is there pride in my heart? But I, w- I don't want to be through ignorance. I want to be fully transparent with God. I want God to speak to me through his word. If there's carnality, if there's sin in my life, it's got to go as well. I need to identify that and get rid of it. Next, is my church a better place because of my love and service? Some of you might only be here in Hui Kala for a, a brief period of time, either through military or jobs or whatever, if that's the case. Will you leave it a better place than you found it? Or will you leave one day and people will be like, I haven't seen that dude in like six months. Where'd he go? Hmm. Now I forgot those people even came to our church. Oh, yeah. Or can you say, no, my church is different because of, of the way that I love and serve. Can you imagine Jesus coming to this earth and leaving and there be no impact whatsoever? The dude changed human history for, forever. He came and lived a brief life that changed everything. So let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. It might only be here for a short time, but make a difference. Next. What are the characteristics that I see in my life and the life of Jesus that I see in my own life? If this mind is in Jesus, this should also be in me. What do I see? What does it look like? You say, I'm supposed to compare myself to Jesus? Yes, that's what Christians do. Jesus is our example. Compare and see how far off you are. Well, I'm really far off. Good, fix it. That's the whole purpose of being a Christian is we have an example to follow. And Jesus is our example. Next, what's my ministry? Ministry is not, it's important to understand and define terms. Minister means servant. Ministry means the job of a servant. What's your ministry? And please understand, I love you to death if this is your answer, but you're wrong. Oh, my ministry is cleaning the bathrooms. No. Look, we could hire people to clean the bathrooms. How do you serve Jesus? What do you do to advance the kingdom? What do you bring to the table? What's your job? And you might say, I don't really know what my job is. Good, I can help you. That's what pastors do. We help you find your job and help connect you with that. But here's the thing. If you don't know what your job is, I can guarantee you're not doing your job. Everybody has a ministry. Everybody. Uh, The Bible says that the the body of Christ is like a body, that just like the body has a hand and fingers, So the body of Christ has unique individuals that God has placed in the body to fulfill the mission of the church. How do you do that? And again, if you say, my my ministry is, you know, uh, I watch kids once every six weeks in the nursery. So you serve God for 90 minutes every six weeks? That's not a ministry. And again, ministry is not confined to what you do in this building. Ministry is what you do when you leave this building. And your ministry looks different than my ministry. And so we can't compare our ministries with each other's, but we can, oh, wow, this is really good, compare our ministry to the ministry of Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Hmm. A lot of good stuff to think about today. 
most important thing to think about is this. If you don't know for sure that you're saved, there's never been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior. Man, let today be that day. Again, this is not joining our church or becoming a Baptist or getting baptized. It's about knowing for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. If you've never done that, everything that we're talking about today will not make sense. It's the opposite of what culture says. It's totally counterculture and counterintuitive. And this doesn't make sense because the Bible says this, that spiritual things are determined by spiritual people or discerned by spiritual people. You don't want to understand this until you become a Christian. So if you're not saved, you've never been a, uh, born again, today's your day to do that. But for those of us that are Christians, are we living a life of service? Have we really submitted our plans to God and said, God, I just want what you want. I'm not going to say a word. I'm not going to do a thing. I'm not going to make a move until I know for a fact it's what you want. That's submission, which will lead us to a life of service for the king. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.